join me in a word of prayer. Gracious God, as we look at this text, show us the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ. Open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word, we ask in your name. Amen. One fall morning, I was headed into my office in Center City, Philadelphia, and as I was walking into the building, I heard a man yelling across the street saying, there's blood, there's blood everywhere, there's blood all over me, there's blood over you, do you see it? Get it off, do something. He started to approach the commuters coming to their offices. There's blood all over you. There's blood all over City Hall. There's blood all over the police station. There's blood on the convention center. Don't you see it? What's wrong with you? Help me. Help me. Well, this was real and distressing for him. But unfortunately, no one else saw what he saw. And that's probably why a lot of people walked away from him or sort of passively put a dollar in his cup. I think one of the reasons this incident stays with me is because his words were true. There is blood everywhere. Not like in Halloween movies, but the kind that segregates people groups and divides nations, splits up families, and stains so badly that in some cases, even after thousands of years, its crimson color still looks very fresh. I'm talking about bad blood. Hatred and division that exists among people that marks the fabric of our relationships. Yusufu Turaki, a Nigerian theologian, tells a story of an African man from a rural village who converted to Christianity from a tribal religion. And going to uh, church the first time, this man was surprised to see another man from a tribe, his own tribe, despised. He said to the pastor, what is this dog doing here? If you knew where he comes from, you would have never let him into your church. If you close your eyes and throw a dart at a map of the world, anywhere it lands, there will be blood-boiling conflicts in those nations, Arab and Jewish relations in the Middle East, Serb and Croatian hostility in Eastern Europe, Hutu and Tutsi divide in Rwanda, black and white relations in North and South America. Yes, everywhere that humans can be, hostility is there. But we don't have to travel the world to find bad blood between people, do we? There's plenty all around us right now where we live, between political parties, at work, in our marriages, families, friendships, yes, even in our churches. Last week, Pastor Tracy preached on the new life God has given us by grace. It's all his doing. God works grace in our hearts. But this week, we're asking the question, does God's grace actually work? Can it do any good to address the long, violent, and complicated hostilities across our world? Yes, Jesus' resurrection put death to death, but can it put to death the hatred that is very much alive in our hearts? Can Jesus do anything about the human heart's love of hating? 
Can Jesus do anything about the human heart's hatred of loving? Does it speak to the bad blood that is everywhere you look? Well, this is where Paul starts us. He identifies the bad blood between Gentiles and Jews in verses 11 through 13. And like he did in the beginning of the chapter, he reminds the Ephesians of their pre-Christian existence. But here he accents the breakdown of the Gentile relationship with the Jewish people, the bad blood that existed between them. When slurs are hurled between groups of people, they identify what is valuable to their respective groups. So, for example, recently I was driving in Pennsylvania and someone yelled out at me, Jersey driver. Apparently, this is not a compliment when you cross over state lines. And he yelled out more, but it was really hard to hear him as I was flying by him on the shoulder. I mean, it was just impossible to hear the rest of it. I'm kidding. Don't, don't try that at home. Don't try that at home. Circumcision was a valuable mark to have that the Gentiles did not have. God gave Abraham and his descendants the sign of circumcision to set them apart from all the other nations. Israel had a special covenant relationship with God. The Jewish people were in, and the Gentiles were out. And these Gentiles were in bad shape in relation to God. In fact, they were in such bad shape that in verse 12, Paul lists five deficiencies with the status of being non-Jewish. Now, don't get me wrong. These Gentiles were totally, totally alive and free to satisfy their bodily passions. They were free to engage in whatever lifestyle their minds could imagine. And that's what Paul explains earlier in chapter 2. But in relation to the life with God, they were imprisoned. They were on a five-point restraint, and they were unable to raise themselves up and find the freedom they longed for. So first, Paul says this, they were separated from Christ. They were like children left without an inheritance or any means. Worse, they were orphaned with no, with no parents to adopt them. They were like slaves left in the marketplace with no one to redeem them. They were cut off from the spring of every spiritual blessing that God intended to give because they were separated from Jesus Christ. Then comes two more. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise. God said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring for an everlasting covenant. A covenant with God that would last forever? How nice. But that covenant was for Abraham and his descendants. God said to David, I will make you the firstborn son and you will be the highest of the kings of the earth and I will establish your offspring forever. A kingship that would last forever with God's stamp of approval upon it? What better security would you want? How nice. But that promise wasn't for the Gentiles. God's commitment to his people was so relentless, even when they failed to obey the covenant with God. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah chapter 31. 
I will make a covenant with the house of Israel, not like the one I made with them when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, because they broke that covenant. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Look at how faithful God is to Israel. But that's not for the Gentiles. Now, no wonder Paul rounds out the list of five restraints with this. They had no hope, and they were without God in the world. They lived under a lifelong death sentence. Life had no other meaning than their sensual pleasures. Their desires and their needs would never align because the Lord was not their shepherd. So all they had left was their wants. Many years ago, I was invited with a group of students to attend an award ceremony um, in, in, uh, during my high school, last year of high school. And as we entered the auditorium and took our seats, the teacher announced the first award for uh, the best essay. So we all looked at each other in suspense, you know, wondering who's going to win this award. And really, to no one's surprise, Kaylee won, won the award. Everyone liked Kaylee. She was so nice. She was so brilliant. Then, next, then the next award came, Best Original Poem. And sure enough, Kaylee won again. I knew something was up because after Kaylee won the award for Best Original Poem, she put the award down into the podium, walked over to her violin case, and started playing a solo. Well, 15 minutes into the solo, I start to realize what the rest of the evening is going to look like. And sure enough, Kaylee took home award after award. It was ridiculous. At one point, a teacher got up and offered his seat, not to Kaylee, but to all the awards she had to take home because they couldn't fit on uh, where she was sitting in her own seat. And we all liked Kaylee just a little less that night. My therapist tells me that after 20 years, I'm really making good progress with this. We were all spectators of the things that she received. And so it was with Israel's awards. The nations were onlookers at best. Yes, yeah, sure. Throughout the Old Testament, there were exceptions to this. But for every Rahab or Ruth, there were long lists of nations that could only see the blessing from a distance. Gentiles were allowed only so close to God's presence, even those who converted to Judaism. In the temple, the place where God's presence dwelt, there was a dividing wall between the court of the Israelites and the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Israelites was closer to God's presence. And there was a signpost written in Latin and Greek that the Gentiles could not cross through this doorway or else be put under the penalty of death. The Gentiles quite literally hit a wall trying to enter into God's presence. Could there be any wonder why there was bad blood between Jews and Gentiles? But here's a twist. Yes, God gave Israel the covenants and renewed them time and again with them. They were in first place in every way, but there was a glaring problem. And here's how I will illustrate it. In Major League Baseball, the all-time number one home run hitter is Barry Bonds. 
But next to Barry Bonds' name is a mark, an asterisk. And the reason for that is because it was discovered that he used steroids to enhance his performance. So from now on, you can't look at his name listed in first place without also being reminded of his moral failure. And for all the first place privileges Israel had, they failed to live up to all that God commanded. And the very things that set them apart from the rest of the nations ended up showcasing their lack of faithfulness to God. Some Jews in Paul's day boasted of their status before God because of the promises, the law, and especially the sign of circumcision. But such boasting led to idolatry, which is why Paul calls circumcision in verse 11 um, a work that is made in the flesh by hands. That's a phrase used in reference to idols. It's very easy to confuse religious activity with devotion to God, and very easy to make judgments about the spiritual lives of others based on their lack of religious involvement. We forget that religious activity is not the same as spiritual vitality with God. You see, God's great desire was not just that people would have the mark of circumcision, but it would be that their hearts were circumcised for him. It was a spiritual reality. Well, look at where we now are. We started with Jews and Gentiles on opposite ends of God's promises. But now all of humanity, Jews and all the nations of the world, are in the same boat, sitting ducks and without a paddle. And although there remained hatred between these two groups, there was one cause that united them. The rejection of the God they most needed. God sent his son into the world, and the world rejected him and crucified him. Henrik Burkhoff, a German theologian, says this, Jesus was crucified by the high priests and the scribes, together with Herod and Pilate, in other words, by Jewish piety and law allied to the Roman state. Just think about that for a moment the most advanced legal system in the world and the most dedicated religious practice put to death the only one who kept God's righteous requirements and the only innocent person that ever lived. But what man intended for evil, God intended for good. When humanity was at its worst, God was at his best. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's where Paul takes us next. He moves from the bad blood between Jews and Gentiles to the shed blood of Jesus from verses 13 to 15. While Jews and Gentiles stood with hostility at the foot of the cross, before their very eyes, God displayed the greatest expression of his love. The first people to receive the promise of pardon were the ones who put Jesus Christ on the cross because it was to them he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Israel was the first to receive God's promises, but they weren't, but they weren't meant to be the last. 
The promises of Abraham, David, and Jeremiah come through the single channel of Jesus Christ to all the world. And this is what verse 13 means when it says that all those who are far off now have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. There is no region or area in this entire world that wasn't intended to receive the forgiveness of sins through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Messiah of Israel is also the Savior of the world. Now look at what Paul explains in more detail about the shed blood of Christ. He says in verse 14, Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. A little more than 30 years ago, the wall that divided East and West Germany started to topple down. For 30 years, it restricted people from West and East Berlin from having contact with each other. And the world watched as crowds of people from both the East and West side were reunited. The wall between Jews and Gentiles stood for thousands of years. And 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on the cross, that dividing wall came toppling down. And at the cost of his own life, he bore the hostility between them so that they would find peace with God and with one another. And Christ is still tearing down walls. Shadia Kabti is a Palestinian who grew up believing that the only way for her to have freedom was to keep the land uh, she was in for herself and for her people. But listen to what she says. As a Palestinian, it's very difficult to reach out to my enemies, the Israelis. But as a Christian Palestinian, I can do so. Because Jesus gives me eyes to see them as he sees me. Jesus gives me the confidence to go against my society. Well, that's amazing of a statement enough. But right next to her, as she is sharing this, is Dan Sarad, who is Jewish and Israeli. And after coming to believe in Jesus, he writes this. When Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs can say to one another, I love you in Jesus' name, the world will see the powerful, reconciling work of the good news. The only hope for peace for the Middle East is truly Jesus. But you see, bad blood builds up over time. Whether we're talking about racial tension, ethnic tension, religious tension, political party tension, even in our personal relationships. You know, for some of you, the biggest wall of hostility is the one dividing you and your family right now, is the one in your bedroom, is the one in your living room. So what are we to do about that? We can try to ignore it, but that doesn't deal with the hostility. We can try to talk through it, But that takes listening, and deep-seated anger can make us deaf to each other. So what can we do with the Everest-sized hostility? On the cross, 
Jesus Christ says to us, give it to me. I will bear it. You built a wall of hostility, and I gave my life to tear it down. Give me your anger, and I will give you my peace, which the world cannot give you. If Jesus Christ can tear down the wall that divided Jews and Gentiles, he can tear down all the walls we've put up between each other. Now, it isn't easy. Bad blood stains pretty badly. But let's start with this. Let's start by meditating on the fact that God has a heart for people on the other side of the wall. It is for them that he has regard and not the walls we've put up. His mission is to unite us. So let's take a step back and let's ask the next logical question. What would things look like now that the wall of hostility has been torn down by Christ? Look at what Paul says in verses 15 and 16. He says that Jesus might create in himself one new man in place of the two and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Jesus takes on our bad blood. He sheds his own blood to kill the hostility between us and we are united and we are one blood. That's what Paul is talking about here, being one blood in Christ. No past can exclude you, and no pedigree gives you privilege. Faith in Christ is what makes us one blood now. Unity is the body, un, excuse me, unity in the body is evidence that Jesus has torn down the walls that divides us all. Yes, we are saved by grace and not by works, but unity is the sign that God's grace actually works in the world that we live in. But sometimes we can confuse unity with uniformity. Sometimes we confuse unity with uniformity. I think we struggle as a church to communicate to people that you don't have to be a certain way to be here. You don't have to look a certain way to be a part of what God is doing in the world. You don't have to have a certain background. You don't have to care about uh, these issues in this way, per se. You don't have to belong to this demographic. No, you are welcome here. Paul says, Christ is working reconciliation. And reconciliation is when two people are made one. Yet they retain their individuality. They are united to each other, but they are not dissolved into each other. Growing up, a friend of mine uh, started reaching out to high school students who were skateboarding in the park and other young adults who were hanging around the parks in our local city. And some had church experience and others not at all. But none of them knew that Jesus was interested in their lives or could do anything about their struggles or problems. And they had many. When I heard that some of my classmates in school had come to faith, I was skeptical. And I was even a bit hostile. How could they come to faith? 
I still saw some of them outside the principal's office. Some still picked fights here and there. They used colorful language. But for some reason, they continued to meet with my pastor friend week after week. Eventually, a Sunday night service started, and they began to attend and then to faithfully serve in that service. And years later, I had found out that they still do. Well, one Sunday night while I was in high school, I decided to attend. And when it was time to serve communion, one of the students stood up, held a loaf of bread, and said to each person who came forward, This is Christ's body broken for you. How could he be up there? How much of the Bible could he even know? Could he really, could he really be a Christian? This was the traffic that was going on in my mind. Well, when it was time for my row to go up, I reluctantly went up, and he looked me in the eyes, and he said, Andrew, this is Christ's body broken for you. And in that moment, it dawned on me. In the part of the world I was in, this was a living sign that Christ was uniting all things to himself. I wish that is what happened. Instead of going up to receive communion, I got up and I walked out of the church. I put up a wall and I let bad blood prevent me from participating with what Jesus was doing. Jesus said, we are united. And I had insisted that we be uniform. On Tuesday, we have an election. And if you are voting, I really hope your candidate wins. And more than that, that all the good you think that will ensue for our nation, I hope all of that proves to be true. But let me ask you this. What will you do if your candidate wins and your brother and sister in Christ is distressed? What will you do? Paul's admonition is clear in Ephesians. We are to be building each other up and not the wall of hostility that Christ died to tear down. Will you zealously pursue unity with your brother or sister as enthusiastically as you endorsed your candidate? Will you commit to be a part of the reconciliation that Christ desires to bring? Don't be like me. Let us embrace all the people that God intends to bring us together to in Jesus Christ. In just a few moments, Pastor Tracy is going to lead us in a time of communion. And communion is the covenant meal that shows that the wall that existed between us has been torn down by Jesus Christ. But it's also the sign that we are united as one people under God in one covenant. We all share equally in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. By taking communion, you are choosing the shed blood of Jesus over the bad blood that exists between you and others.
Let this be a time to celebrate what Christ has joined together, not just now, but for all eternity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for tearing down the dividing wall between us. And thank you for showing us that on the other side is none less than our own family. People you created us, uh, created us to know and to love and to join in your mission in this world. Would you please forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we continue to build up dividing walls and not to be sensitive to the leading of your spirit who calls us to go to all people as humble sinners in need of your grace, sharing the good news of who you are and what you've done, equally in need of the gospel as all others. Would you please soften our hearts today and this week? Help us to see the beautiful reconciliation that Jesus Christ gave his life to make in this world by giving up his life. Would you do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.